The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Hello and welcome to this History Extra Plus podcast, Pearl Harbour, the story of the surprise attack. This is episode two, America on the Eve of War. On the 7th of December 1941, when US Navy vessels at Pearl Harbor found themselves sitting ducks for a surprise Japanese attack, the US population were left reeling. But considering the months and years that had gone before, should the country have seen it coming? I'm Ellie Cawthorn, and in this five-part series on Pearl Harbor, I'm taking a look back at this pivotal moment in global history, speaking to expert historians about the long historical roots underlying US-Japanese hostilities, charting exactly how the attack unfolded, and exploring its far-reaching consequences. In today's episode, we're going to be taking a look at how the United States had been on a collision course with Japan for several years preceding Pearl Harbor. We'll be examining the American perspective on that disintegrating relationship, trying to understand their thinking on the eve of the attack, and asking, why was the US public so blindsided by a Japanese raid? So if we want to understand the attack on Pearl Harbor, it's really important to think about what was going on in the United States in the run-up. And the things that we really want to remember is that on the one hand, the the U.S. was a largely isolationist country. It was not involved in the ongoing conflicts that were separate from each other in Europe and in Asia, and actively was trying to stay out of those wars, even though it supported sides in both cases. But even though the U.S. wasn't involved in these conflicts, the U.S. was also deeply invested. So the U.S. is deeply concerned with what's going on in Europe and Asia and is trying to use all steps short of war to affect what goes on. And it took one step too far. That was Dana Barnes, Senior Lecturer in Modern History at City University of London. Dana specialises in the history of American foreign policy and East Asia. So she's the perfect person to give us a view from inside the United States in the years and months preceding the attack on Pearl Harbor. So what exactly was happening in the US in the 1930s and 40s? We're often told that this was an intensely isolationist period of American history when the neutral United States was staying firmly out of conflict in Asia and Europe. And seeing things from that perspective makes a surprise attack on a neutral country hard to understand. But as Dana told me, the American position on international affairs was much more nuanced than that. What we think about when we think about the US in the sort of run-up to it joining World War II is the US really in a period of isolationism uh, and kind of in a period of withdrawal from the world stage. Famously, it didn't join the League of Nations. Um, it uh, was staying uh, neutral in conflicts that are going on in Europe and Asia. Uh, and so what we think about is we think about a US that's really not involved on the world stage much at all. But when we think that we're actually wrong. Because what's happening in the 1930s and and just building up until 1941 is that the US is actually really involved on the world scene. And in many places, this involvement was active 
and influential. It's still the number one economy in the world. And what that means is it's really deeply integrated with the world's global economy and has global interests. Uh, So it has business concerns everywhere. And then when we think about the US and the Asia Pacific in particular in the 1930s and 1940s, we also want to remember that the US was an empire. And that might not be surprising to your British audience, but maybe to the Americans. It will be because we tend not to remember that bit of American history. But in 1941, the US was absolutely a traditional empire. And it had territories in the Pacific, including Guam, Wake Island, American Samoa, Hawaii, and the Philippines, uh, which was the most important of American colonies. Uh, So the US is really active and involved on the world stage, and especially in Asian context. Looking later in the 20th century, and even into the 21st, America has often been referred to as a global policeman. And despite the fact that America was supposedly neutral and isolationist at this time, Dana suggests that we might be able to identify some earlier echoes of that idea in this period. About 10 months before the attack on Pearl Harbor, so February 1941, there's an article that comes out in Life magazine. And Life magazine is the most circulated magazine in the United States. So it's got loads and loads of readers uh, across the country. And this article really makes waves. Uh, It was by the editor of the magazine. His name was Henry Luce. And the article is called The American Century. And this article is calling for the U.S. to take on sort of a a moral and military and political leadership around the world. Essentially, what it's asking is that we replace the Pax Britannia with a Pax Americana. And this article makes such a splash that it's still a term that we use today that you hear often. It's picked up in Congress. Uh, A Democratic representative from New York uh, immediately tries to submit a proposal to create a committee to preserve and propagate democracy with the idea of assisting democracies around the world, making the case that uh, America taking the mantle of global leadership would benefit the United States, but also create uh, material and more moral progress everywhere. And so it's that same kind of seed of interventionism that we see later in places like South Vietnam and more recently Iraq and Afghanistan. So when we think of the U.S. in the 1930s and early 1940s as being isolationist, in a way we're very wrong because all of these other ideas are swirling too. What's important to remember that just because the United States wasn't yet a combatant in the Second World War, didn't mean that they weren't interested in protecting and promoting their own interests on the global stage. And this extended to influencing or even policing the behaviour of others, as Japan would come to learn the hard way. Before we move off the subject, I don't want to sound like we're dismissing the significance of American isolationism, because it was certainly an important force in US society and politics at the time. For example, the isolationist pressure group The America First Committee claimed a membership of 800,000 at its peak, including influential figures like the aviator Charles Lindbergh. In May 1940, he declared in a radio broadcast, there will be no invasion by foreign aircraft and no foreign navy will dare to approach within bombing range of our coasts. So as Dana told me, it's not that isolationism wasn't important. 
It's just that we need to understand that what it meant was more nuanced than simply minding your own business. Isolationism, though, it means something a little different than what maybe the term sounds like. Because isolationism sounds like I'm isolated, I'm staying away from everyone else. And that's not actually what the term means. What isolationism meant for the U.S. was American unilateralism. So an America that is not tied up with, they called them foreign entanglements, political and military alliances, in particular with European states, uh, that would force the U.S. draw it into wars against its own interests. So as long as the U.S. has its own autonomy of action, uh, then it can be internationalist, it can be an expansionist power, but still be an isolationist. And so isolationism as American unilateralism. And then thinking about why the U.S. isn't involved in the war, there's, of course, the classic argument that the U.S. has a moat around it. Uh, It's surrounded on one side by the Pacific, on one side by the Atlantic. Uh, Its two neighbors, Mexico and Canada, aren't a significant threat. And this comfort, or possibly complacency, about U.S. security became really important when it came to the prospect of becoming embroiled in costly conflicts that broke out in Europe and Asia. There's really a sense that there's no need for the U.S. to go to war. It's not really under any kind of a security threat like the European powers are. And so because American interests are not immediately threatened, why join the war? That's a really uh, strong idea. And there was a really strong sense that the U.S. really had more to lose than to gain by getting involved. And so this was a really strong idea, and so much so that uh, the president at the time, Franklin Roosevelt, ran in 1940 on a campaign promise uh, that he wouldn't send your boys into foreign wars. Uh, So the country is really concerned about not getting drawn into another European conflict. And remembering World War I as an example in which the U.S. was drawn into a war that was really about European interests uh, and that really didn't benefit the United States, which plenty of historians would disagree with, but many people thought so at the time. Dana just mentioned there that in the 1940 presidential election, Franklin D. Roosevelt promised that he would not send America's boys to war. In fact, he said, I have said this before, but I shall say it again and again and again. Your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign wars. So to what extent had Roosevelt accurately judged the mood of the American public there? Were most Americans keen to stay out of any conflict? Because of course, as we know in 1941, what we have are two separate conflicts. There's a war going on in Europe since 39, and there's a war that's going on in Asia that's just between China and Japan that began in 1937. Uh, And so what the Americans think about these two separate conflicts are actually very different from each other. Uh, Internationalists calling for American moral leadership have ideas about what the U.S. can do within the Asian contexts. And isolationists actually take quite a mixed approach to the Asia question because they're worried about getting drawn into a European conflict. And so that's not necessarily a let's stay out kind of position when you're thinking about Asia. Americans weren't terribly uh, aware or concerned about uh, U.S. territories abroad, so weren't that worried about, for example, the colony in the Philippines. And that's partly because in the U.S. there's this anti-imperialist narrative that the U.S. was a former colony itself and so therefore wasn't an imperial power. 
And so because of that, you get a, a real sense in American public opinion, which is then echoed in Congress, that I'll quote uh, the Senator Burton Wheeler uh, from Montana in 1940. He says, the only excuse we would have to join a war with Japan is for the purpose of protecting the British Empire, right? Completely forgetting that it's not only Britain that has colonies in Asia, but America as well. The New York chapter of America First talks about this need to stay out of the war in Asia. And what America First says is that the actions from Japan, quote, in no way concern the national interests of the United States. So Americans have no reason to send their sons to the battlefield of China, no reason to tell the people of Asia how to manage the affairs of Asia. So it's a pretty good keep out idea too. And it's these attitudes towards Asia and the conflict there that we should perhaps be most interested in. We heard in the last episode how Japan had a complicated cultural relationship with the US, with the Japanese both attracted to American modernity and culture, and yet also afraid of it, and sometimes even repulsed by it. But how did the US feel about the Japanese in return? Historically, Japan and the US had some points of commonality, and some points of cultural closeness, and also um, some real difficulties between the two of them. And one of those key points of difficulty was immigration. Uh, So Japan is a country with a growing population, and with a sense that it isn't able to sustain that population on its own territory. And so there are waves of immigration out of Japan in the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, and many people are relocating, especially to the west coast of the United States. This creates a a real pushback from especially the local white populations on the West Coast of the United States. And so you see things like something that was called the Japanese and Korean Exclusion League in San Francisco in 1906, which had called for segregation. In the U.S., there, there was a segregation in education between black and white populations. And this group wanted there also to be segregation so that Asian students wouldn't be taught alongside white students. And so you have this kind of racial bias in the U.S. And these groups also were calling for a ban on immigration to keep more Japanese from coming into the country. This is resolved by something called the Gentleman's Agreement. The two governments negotiate and the Japanese government agrees essentially to restrict its own immigration out into the U.S. so that there doesn't have to be a rule in place, uh, which would be a bit of a diplomatic humiliation. And so This is one of the problems that we see between the two groups. And in 1924, there's an Asian Exclusion Act, which bans Asian immigration to the United States, including Japan in that group. So uh, there's been some historical issues and difficulties around that question. This seems like a good point to cycle back to something that we touched on in the last episode, a historical sore point in the US-Japanese relationship. You'll remember that at the Paris Peace Conference following the First World War, Japan had tried to have a racial equality clause included in the treaty, a proposal that was rejected by the US and other Western powers. Uh, And there's really a a mixed feeling in the United States uh, to do with race and questions of equality. On the one hand, you have quite 
high-flying rhetoric, uh, which you see in, uh, we call it Wilsonianism, the words and ideas of the president at the time, Woodrow Wilson, that really calls for a representation of all states and also for people to be represented by their own governments. So a really, in some ways, anti-racist policy. But at the same time, certainly when you look at the words of leadership at the time, uh, you see reflected quite a strong Orientalist bias against Japan and the Japanese. The racial picture is, is pretty mixed. And what's interesting is that when it came to the Asia-Pacific region, America's allegiances didn't always lie where you might expect. The US was a neutral in uh, the two conflicts in Europe and Asia up until the end of 1941. But that is absolutely not to say that it didn't have, if you want, a dog in the fight. Uh, The U.S. had great sympathy in the case of the uh, European theater with Great Britain and in the case of the Asian theater with China. There are some reasons that uh, the United States has this strong sympathy for China. On the one hand, it's a little bit surprising because Japan is a larger economy. And so the U.S. and Japan are each other's third largest trading partners. They have really strong business ties. So there's really a good reason to think that there's a closeness between the two. But at the same time, there's really a groundswell of support from public opinion, but also from the government for China. And some of that is because of the huge market potential of China. If China becomes more developed, think of all the things that we could sell is a popular idea amongst American industry at the time. And then the idea of small r republicanism. So the idea that nationalist China is something like an early version of the United States, a a country that's going to be independent of a monarchy, having thrown off the imperial system in 1911, and uh, is really going to be something kind of as an American-style democracy. And so that and also the success of American missionaries in China lead to all of these sentiments of the Chinese as being, quote, kind of like us from an American perspective. For example, there's a woman called Pearl S. Buck, and she wrote a book called The Good Earth, which was uh, based on her experiences as an American missionary. And it's quite a sympathetic account of Chinese peasants. And that book got made into a movie in 1937, the year that a war between China and Japan broke out. And that movie won several Academy Awards. Uh, It was really popular. And it really drummed up a sense of public sympathy for the Chinese. And so when there's a war between Japan and China, in which Japan is certainly the the aggressor, public sentiment is firmly against Japan. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter, because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. This allegiance with China left the US in a tricky position because despite wanting the Chinese to win the war, 
The Americans were a central trading partner supplying their enemies, the Japanese. In effect, US trade was enabling a war that it believed to be morally wrong. And in the end, this position became untenable. Because of this public sentiment, at first there's a call for what was called a a moral embargo. So calling on American companies, no rules and regulations, but please don't sell things like aeroplane parts to Japan. Uh, This is then followed up in 1939 by sort of a stronger idea that uh, Japan was going to push back against this moral embargo by threatening the commercial treaty between the U.S. and Japan. And then the big thing that we think about is 1940 is when there's an embargo on oil. So the Americans stop selling this crucial material that Japan needs to continue to fight this war it's engaged in. Um, And that's really uh, a turning point in U.S.-Japanese relations. It's an interesting turning point because to me that would seem a really clear step towards provoking an attack. Was there a sense from the establishment that if they did level this this oil embargo, that there was a risk that Japan might launch some kind of military action. Yes, but not against the United States itself. What American policymakers thought might happen was that it might encourage Japan uh, to push into other areas that might give it other sources of oil. In particular, what they were worried about, especially after the occupation of the Netherlands by Germany in the European theater, uh, the Netherlands had a colony, uh, which was uh, what we now call Indonesia, which was a potential source of oil. So there was a concern that uh, Japan might push south uh, and expand its empire into Southeast Asia as a way of pivoting away from its reliance on American exports uh, and to feed that need for oil. So that was a potential challenge. But what they hoped would happen is that Japan needing oil but not wanting to provoke an additional conflict would be forced to a negotiating table and would have to make concessions and that this would maybe stop the war between Japan and China and allow for a more negotiated settlement. This idea of forcing Japan into a negotiated settlement to end the war in China is interesting because there have been plenty of attempts at US-Japanese negotiation before. But all of those attempts had failed to find a compromise that both parties were satisfied with. Why? Uh, So throughout 1941, we call them the Hull-Nomura negotiations, after the names of the uh, the two figures who were leading it on both sides. And this negotiation, it's looking for some kind of a diplomatic solution. Japan doesn't want to go to war with the United States. The United States does not want to go to to war with Japan. Um, So what kind of, they called it a modus vivendi. What, What kind of way can we find to live with each other? And the U.S., had the point that it would reopen trade to Japan if Japan were to stop its uh, fighting with China, what we called uh, south of the Great Wall. So Japan had already invaded Manchuria in the north of China and created a puppet state, which it called Manchukuo. And the Americans wouldn't give diplomatic recognition to Manchukuo because this was Uh, they argued, still part of China. And so the argument here is, we'll let you keep this chunk of northern China, Manchukuo, we'll recognize your control, and we'll reestablish trade if you leave the rest of China alone. But 
for Japan, this kind of a bargain really would mean walking away from a war that had already been fighting for three years. Uh, and so it's really a huge concession to admit defeat in a war that you could well win. That offer wasn't very attractive to the Japanese. When I spoke to Chris Harding in the last episode, one word he kept using to characterise the Japanese perspective on their position was encirclement. The Japanese felt ever more squeezed by hostile powers, especially the US. It felt that these hostile powers were trying to prevent its access to resource-rich regions, without which it faced collapse and destruction. So did the US feel any equivalent threat posed by Japan? and their expansion into the Asia-Pacific region? No, not at all. From the American perspective, it's largely a sideshow. It's not nearly as important as what's going on in Europe. And then when Americans thought about what kind of a threat Japan might be, they really minimalized that threat. Uh, So making the case that actually even isolationists saying, we can be assertive against Japan, take a hard line, have an embargo, force a tough negotiating position, because... On the one hand, Japan wouldn't dare attack the United States. This is a really common idea. And on the other hand, even if they did, it wouldn't matter because the U.S. is so much stronger than Japan. And you hear this really quite biased and racialized skepticism of Japan's military prowess. And so, for example, in some of the planning documents, you read about uh, discussions of the Japanese having a a sort of Asian eye shape that causes nearsightedness and therefore makes for bad pilots. And so Americans oughtn't be worried about an attack from Japan because they um, simply can't fight well. And these really ridiculous racialized ideas, even though they've been disproven by Japan's military successes in the 19th and 20th century, they're still very pervasive. So there's a sense that first, Japan wouldn't attack. And second, even if they did, they couldn't do much damage. So that sense of superiority, did that extend the prospect of war? Did most Americans feel optimistic that if they did get embroiled in a war, they would be fine? Against Germany, perhaps not. But against Japan, absolutely. It was very difficult for Americans to imagine that uh, Japan would seriously take on the United States. Uh, And so this wasn't a major concern in the public consciousness. It was much more for people who were concerned with events in Asia. And again, that's not most people. It's much more how to uh, contain Japan and end its aggression in China and much less thinking about Japan as a threat to the United States. That's not really on the radar The exception to that perhaps is that, um, and again, amongst people who were aware of America's colonies in the Asia Pacific, there was a real concern that uh, the American empire in the Philippines, because from 1934, the Philippines had become a commonwealth state as opposed to a more traditional colony and had actually been promised independence for 1945. And so there was worry that uh, if the U.S. left the Philippines as an independent state, it might be weak and the Japanese might then colonize it themselves. Uh, So in that sense, a little bit of a concern about an American territory, uh, but certainly not American mainland uh, concerns. What Dana said there about the US underestimating the threat posed by Japan is intriguing, because a big part of Pearl Harbor's punch relied on the fact that it was a surprise attack. 
Clearly, there was an underestimation of the risks that Japan would be willing to take. And is that part of the reason why most Americans were really blindsided by the attack? Absolutely. Uh, The American public, yes. American policy planners, many places, yes. Those people who were more aware of things, again, were thinking that there was going to be a push to the south, uh, maybe to to British colonies, but especially to Dutch colonies and uh, further into uh, what's now Vietnam, looking for things like oil, uh, iron, tin, and rubber. And so really the expectation was it was going to be in European colonies in Southeast Asia rather than an attack on uh, the United States itself. That isn't 100% the case. One of the really interesting things about getting to be historian is you go to the archives and you find things that you're not looking for. Uh, And a few years ago, I came across the diaries of several American diplomats who were stationed in Japan at the time of Pearl Harbor. And it was so fascinating to read about their experiences because what you always hear and, and the experience of people in Washington is, oh, Japan might push south or Japan will be a deterred. But the people who are in Tokyo, they write about being relieved when they hear about the attack because they had had this growing sense of impending doom and dread. They were aware that there wasn't much overlap between Japan's position and the U.S.'s position, and they had been trying to avoid a conflict, but really felt like this conflict was becoming inevitable. And so they talk about really there being a relief that matters were taken out of their hands and that now that the worst had come, they could face it head on rather than just uh, living underneath this sort of of Damocles. Uh, So there is that one counterexample. Some people on the ground in Tokyo knew better, but most people did not. American diplomats in Tokyo are talking to their counterparts all the time. So they're really aware of the Japanese negotiating position and what Japan will and will not accept. Whereas from the perception of Americans on the mainland in the United States, regardless of what Japan's position, what Japan might like, might be, the feeling is, well, surely Japan will have to concede because the US is the stronger power. While most Americans may not have expected a direct surprise attack from the Japanese in December 1941, the prospect of having to join the war at some point, either in Asia, Europe, or maybe both, wasn't some distant fantasy, but a fairly realistic probability. So how ready for war was the U.S. on the eve of the attack? Within context of Pearl Harbor, yes, the U.S. is ready for a war against Japan. I'd like to throw in a caveat that we sometimes forget looking backwards at history that in 1941, the U.S. was not a superpower, right? There were no superpowers in the world at that time. Uh, And it was certainly not nearly as strong as it would be in 1945 and later. But it was a significant strength and it had potential. Thinking about what fighting power might be like, I think it's good to think about uh, first the Navy and then the Army. And so from the 1930s and 1940s, there were a series of naval agreements between the U.S., Great Britain, and Japan that were meant to avoid an arms race. And so the three powers made an agreement uh, that set tonnage restrictions on their ship building uh, so that there would be something like parity. And that set of uh, agreements, the ratio was 10-10-6. 
So if you want, for every 10 heavy cruisers that Great Britain or the U.S. builds, Japan gets to build six. Now, Japan had walked away from this in the late 1930s because it felt unfair to a more assertive Japan. Um, But essentially what that did is it gave parity to the three powers because the U.S. and Great Britain, and Great Britain, of course, is the largest navy in the world at the time, both of those powers are global powers. So they have and project their naval strength in the Pacific, in the Atlantic, uh, and in the case of Great Britain, also, of course, in the Indian Ocean. The U.S. is sort of a second place in relative strength in terms of naval power to Great Britain, which is a very strong position to be in. Japan is considered to be a potential equal because it's got fewer ships, less strength, but it's only concentrated in one place. It's only in the Pacific. So in a Pacific war, the U.S. and Japan are intentionally just about equal. In terms of the army, the U.S. uh, initiates a peacetime military draft in 1940. So it actually does have a reasonable number of men-at-arms given that it's not at war about uh, 270,000 in 1940. But that number skyrockets really quickly because the U.S. can draw on its large population. And by 1941, uh, just after Pearl Harbor, that number is 1.5 million. So a huge jump. And then when you look at a year later, 1942, it's doubled to 3 million. So within two years, you go from 270,000 to 3 million. That tells you that the U.S. has a, a large manpower capacity to draw on, but you can immediately imagine what kind of problems that causes, right? Because that means that the, the troops and the manpower in the American military They're all inexperienced. They're all new recruits. They're not what uh, they call in the military blooded. They're not experienced in combat at all. And this is a major disadvantage uh, against Japan because Japan had been at war for four years already. So the Japanese troops and Japanese leadership had experience and knew what they were doing. Now, despite that, the U.S. has this advantage that it's been undamaged because it hasn't had a war fought on its own territories. And the U.S., it's the second largest economy in the world, so it has this huge industrial capacity uh, of a great economic powerhouse, the biggest economy in the world. Speaking to Dana about the United States on the eve of Pearl Harbor has added some much-needed complexity to what's often painted as a fairly simple picture. Yes, there was an isolationist streak in U.S. society, But that didn't mean that Americans were uninterested or uninvolved in what was going on elsewhere in the world. Yes, most Americans did not see a direct attack from Japan coming, but they did anticipate some kind of retributive action in response to the embargoes that they levelled. And yes, the US may have been an industrial behemoth on the eve of the attack, but its war machine still had a fair amount of catching up to do. Before we finished, I did have one final question for Dana. One thing I wanted to ask you was about whether you think there's some point down the line of negotiations that the the standoff between Japan and America could have been resolved peacefully and we wouldn't have had Pearl Harbor. If the isolationists in the US who had made the case that, well, none of America's interests in the Asia-Pacific are vital, had held sway, then it would have been possible to have a negotiation and a resolution between the U.S. and Japan. So 
if the U.S. were willing to back down from their support of nationalist China and allow that war to go on without supporting the Chinese, then they would have been able to meet, to reach a diplomatic settlement. Certainly, one can imagine a situation in which leaving the China question to one side, the Japanese and American leaderships could have looked at a map of the Asia-Pacific and drawn lines. We think about Hawaii as being an American state and a, a part of the United States. But in 1941, it wasn't. It was just a territory. And it's halfway between the U.S. and Japan. So you can really think about how much America had territorial interests that really came right up against Japanese expansive interests. But if they could have drawn lines for spheres of influence, if the U.S. had been willing to let go of its support, moral and uh, material, for China, then there might have been an agreement. But American sentiment was so strong in support of China. And American sentiment was also quite strong in the sort of moral argument that aggression against neighbor states is wrong. It's hard to imagine the U.S. agreeing to that unless they had been more aware of the potential of a Japanese attack. Uh, and the U.S. did have some intelligence information. This really was um, a bolt out of the blue from the American perspective. People simply didn't imagine a Japanese attack, particularly not a coordinated Japanese attack, not only on a major American naval base uh, at Pearl Harbor, but also simultaneously at Manila in the Philippines, uh, at Singapore. People didn't see it coming and wouldn't have imagined that it was possible. Next episode, we'll be going into much more depth on the days and hours leading up to the attack with the historian and journalist Steve Twomey. He'll be telling me about how inch-perfect Japanese planning and oversights by American military figures combined to leave Pearl Harbor a sitting duck for Japanese bombers. Thanks for listening. This episode was researched and written by me, Ellie Cawthorn. My guest for today was Dana Barnes, Senior Lecturer in Modern History at City University of London. Production by Jack Bateman. Additional checks by Rob Blackmore.